This is the Deep Color podcast series. Deep Color is an oral history project that features artists and arts professionals discussing their work, ideas, and lives, offering listeners a forthright and unique understanding about the process, experiences, and people behind the artistic pursuit. My name is Joseph Hart. I produce and facilitate this series. These recordings are casual, long form, and unscripted. Deep Color is independently produced and a free resource for listeners. You can learn more about this project by visiting deepcolorpodcast.com. You can also access the archive of past recordings, find links to contributing artists' online portfolios, check out the shop, and make a donation through the support page. Be sure to share this project within your community and rate and review wherever you get your podcasts. Your continued belief in Deep Color is incredibly important, and I thank you for your support. This episode profiles Curtis Tallwaste Santiago. Curtis is a multidisciplinary artist that makes drawings, paintings, performance and videos, installation, and sculpture. His work can range from life-size beaded suits of armor to miniature dioramas that feature figurative scenes constructed inside of repurposed jewelry boxes. His mixed-media drawings and paintings depict symbolic narratives and different interpretations of self-portraiture where faces are frequently represented by a blast of red spray paint. In all of Curtis's work, wading into history, genetic trauma and ancestry, and how we perceive and imagine these histories serve as conceptual commonalities. We recorded this conversation remotely. I was in Southern New Hampshire and Curtis was at his current home in Munich, Germany. It seems like you're quite comfortable talking about your work. Is that fair to say? It it is. It it you know it really fluctuates day to day. It's mm-hmm. like um I've I've been playing a lot of basketball and oh, yeah. more again like than I used to. I've, I hadn't played for years and then I started like okay let's start shooting hoops and you can go in one day and feel like you can hit everything and then the next day I you you go in and you miss everything and sometimes I feel like that with speaking about the work where I feel oh I really communicated that and then other days I just dread what I've said. And felt like I wasn't able to articulate what I was meaning because maybe I'm in the middle of still thinking about something, or maybe my my perception of what I was making changed that day. And now I've set the whole, you know, that 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 the the language that I've already developed it's now off because <laughs> the system is is obsolete. Yeah, I think that's important for us to remember. Is like what what we sort of land on one day for for this work of art, or, or like the sort of terms of our studio practice could be entirely different the next day. Um, And it's important, I think, to remember to allow for that flexibility. Um, But I think over time and like speaking about my work and writing about my work and and, and applying for grants and residencies Mm -hmm. and artist statements, um, that's helped me. Have you found it helpful like over time, like doing it more and more? Yes, absolutely. Because then the more, like, so there's things that will remain through every grant that or time that something that I'll just mention. And I'm like, Oh, then that's, that's, that's true. That's very, very, very true. And that is, and so then it, it becomes a part of my language. Yeah, absolutely. So writing about it is always, I find the best way for me to then understand when it comes to what I'm doing. Sort of another paradox for me. It's like, I, I kind of loathe having to apply for things, mm-hmm. but at the same time, it's a pretty valuable exercise. Um, to, to find that language and to sort of work on it. Yep. We are in an undeniable historic moment, the COVID-19 pandemic. And everyone is sort of dealing with this and navigating this differently and finding coping mechanisms and strategies to sort of get through the hours, the days, the weeks. Uh, how have you been navigating things and, and sort of looking forward? Well, it fluctuates um, day to day. The I first tr- really try to focus on. I remember the first week there was a lot of "woe is me" kind of going on. The yeah. the I had just the drawing center. We announced that it closed. The show with Rachel closed. And let's just be honest. Like, if we're full time artists, how do we make our money? How do we 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 have exhibitions or fairs, or you have a breakthrough kind of moment in your career that might signify that oh, there's going to be new interest in in the work. And so I, I've, from my time in music, I was in music, I was a professional musician from, I think, like 14 until 
probably early 30s, uh, just focusing solely on that, I'd learned not to put all my eggs in a basket and be like, oh, this label's going to sign me. This is going to happen. I do like to manifest and think about what I'd like to see happen, but nothing's guaranteed. So I wasn't like, oh, this means money in the bank. But I was like, there's a potential of money in the bank. And then and that changed. Um, the fact that we'd spent so much time, almost two, three years uh, into the work, and then that was so that was the initial feeling but then i started to like think about uh the beaded objects that i make uh i collaborate with my friend jimmy who lives in south africa he's a street artist he makes his work on the street and i started thinking about what is he going through i mm -hmm. bet shit's real for him right now mm -hmm. and i started to then like just do the walking like really think about gratitude i got to open the show at that opening, my family, who had never seen my work presented on that level, they got to come. They got to meet my partner, who were having our first child. And so then I started to just focus on all the, all the good, all the good that look at the situation that I'm in. I'm here in Germany. The healthcare is good. Access to fresh food is like weekly. I can go to the, the a market. Uh, the the air, everything. I just started to shift away from from the negative and be like, okay, well, what does this mean? I don't know what this means. When, when my career, did I not know what it meant? I never went to university for art. I didn't study. So I just first got a studio and just started working without the idea of like, oh, there'll be an exhibition. I just started working and the work was the most honest. So that is what I've then tried to focus to get, get back to. I'm like, well, I don't know. I'm not even going to think about this museum show I was supposed to have next year or this thing. I'm just yeah. going to, Make, maybe this is an opportunity just to get back to making without that, that, that target that on the calendar of like, this object has to be done by this time. Yeah, and, sometimes the, the lack of deadline is yeah. liberating. Yes. Sounds like you're finding ways to think about being productive mm -hmm. and making again. Yeah. Yeah, I, but the idea of productive too has changed. Like I, I just finished a commission and I was like, okay, I have to be productive for that. But now I'm like, Let's just slow down. I thought about, I've been thinking about what New York has done for my practice. And moving to New York the very first time, it accelerated things. But that also means everything accelerates. This pressure, this need to feel like a performance. Um, I often view like arts within New York and in America sometimes feel similar to like how sports are viewed. It's so, it's like beyond competitive. And there's this idea that you've always got to be working. Yeah. Like this, yeah. this hustle that you always, and you got to show that you're working on social media and you got to, and I'm re recognizing, accepting that that, that doesn't work for me. Who am I? I'm, I lived in New York and I didn't go out to all the amazing events that were happening daily and nightly. And I, because that's just not me, you know? So that has been good to get back to like, well, who are you? No one's watching what you're doing here and no one. So just breathe and slow down. I totally agree. I totally agree. I find myself on some sort of forced pause. I have two young kids and my partner has a more traditional nine to five that she's uh, uh, thankfully able to do remotely. But I'm now like the, the childcare and homeschool overlord. Um, I'm, and I'm having, you know, some, some significant challenges making work when I can, like in the evenings, it feels a little flat, you know, um, I'm, I'm not really present. I'm feeling pretty disoriented and, and there's, there's, you know, there's moments of fear and paranoia creeping in. It really is this, this whiplash of emotions and outlooks. Um, but on the other side of all that, I think there's a lot of healthy reevaluation going on, which is what it sounds like you're doing in a lot of ways. No, I'm trying. I'm, I'm, I'm trying. And I think, uh, I, I'm, I'm, yes. For example, got a letter saying that Freeze in October in London was going to give us a feature booth, and when it came, when I got the email, I just said, "Well, if it happens, great. I'll prepare. Right. If it happens, great." And then there was an email just maybe like a few days ago, being like, "In the fortunate case that this happens, that it, we open up the fair." So I was glad that I was already able to just regulate the expectations not of 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 the things that i can't control like i don't know if you, I, again it's i recognize it's different my brother is a, a is a was like for a long time a stay-at-home father with his practice his career he could do from the home but he was also responsible for three kids and uh so i know from him how much energy that takes yeah so 
the idea of for, of you talking about like like no, you've got a five year old and a nine year old at home who's not used to this. How do you explain to them? How do you get a five year old to understand that this is where the world's at and it'll pass? And so I, yeah, I can I can I I don't think I'd be able to really create with the same like right now. I'm like relishing in the fact that in September I will have a child. My partner works in an office. I don't. So that's going to be more like eventually more of my reality. So I'm using this time to like, just like uh, I start first. I don't know if you did this, right, but maybe you didn't do this because of mm-hmm. your situation, but this, I found so many friends like a single friends or younger artists like this need now, now is you're going to become the bionic artist. <laughs> yeah. you know, you're going to study everything under the sun. Your yoga game is going to be a point. And that I was just like, no, I think what is important is that I work on my drawing there's a slow down time to like improve techniques because I just feel like that's what withstands anyways, as a great artist is able to handle their materials in a masterful way. That was always the bottom line, you know? And that is now like that, that's for me, the focus, like the, I'm fortunate that the dioramas I make, the infinity series are small, self-contained. I can do them at a small desk and they are very slow to make. And so I was fortunate that I had a practice that was already quarantine ready, you know, and so just roll into that. Yeah. Managing expectations is such a valuable skill. And I, and I, I think we really have to work on that in this moment. I think um, I, for, I always credit my parents for, for the understanding of like, uh, I don't know what, sometimes I think it's like this ancestral kind of patience of people who dealt with like serious hardships who are able to just kind of sometimes look at things and not freak the fuck out. I just think I'm like, I just like, I think about, well, you know, the, just the different scenarios my parents have been in any parents with three kids who don't have, you know, like, like the, 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 we were middle class when there was a middle, but they didn't start that way, you know? So mm-hmm. they always taught us a lot of just being of gratitude and just being, you know, relaxed, breathe, be grateful for what you have. And I think yeah. that I'm just leaning in on the teachings of them. And especially as I'm about to become a father, I think about what are the things I want to pass forward and what are the things I don't want to pass forward. And uh, and the work ethic and their idea of just when even when no one's watching, just continue to do the work. And I don't know, this kind of feels like I'm rambling a little bit, but that has been the saving grace in this moment for for sure. Yeah, that sounds great. Let's shift gears and talk about artistic cool. identity. I know you use the term cool. multidisciplinary artist. Can you give us an overview of the different yeah. types of work you make and maybe some of the approaches you use to make your work? Okay. So I think first and foremost for me is always, um, I started off as a musician and a performer, a stage performer. Um, I fronted bands. I did television work, commercials, things like that. Uh, so for the transition into visual, I still always view everything um, a bit of it with a, like a, I just feel like they all meld into the same thing. Making a music and making a painting for me sometimes is very, is very similar. You have bass and you have high notes and you have composition, you have tempo, you have timing, you have arrangement, all of these things. And they just feed back and forth. So for, I was in music for a long time, always, always looking at painting, always looking at, for me, it was the first started off with Basquiat, uh, Simply the introduction, my brothers are 10 and 9 years older than me. My eldest brother showed me that because he wanted me to see a black, a young black artist who entered the same sphere as Picasso and everybody else. And as all as an example is that to, to, because he could draw, my brother's draftsmanship was through the roof. And mine wasn't the same quality as his or the same style as his. Uh, and so I would get frustrated. I'm like, this is not looking like these, 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 these artists. He's like, yeah, but it's riffing on these, these, these artists. So then drawing and painting were, were something that I, I did. And then the dioramas came, the sculpture came in. And again, not coming from the traditional arts background, I wasn't conscious of like, oh, I'm making a, a shift from 2D to 3D. I was always just making to tell the stories uh, that I couldn't tell through music, through, through a song. You know, and so my nephew actually put me on to that because he's a very skilled, skilled artist. And uh, over the holidays, he was uh, maybe last year, he was just like, you know, Uncle, I never really liked your previously. I didn't like your drawings because he is very technical. He's very classically trained. That's his vibe. 
And then he was like, but then I understood that just like your music, you wanted to tell stories. And by understanding the use of your lines, and this is what you this is what you're referencing, that you were able to tell these stories better. So I think the commonality through all my work is just how do I tell this story through the best the best medium possible? And I will just pick up something and try something and see see if this resonates with me, if I if I can get into that zone and experiment. And through experimentation, hopefully stumbling on a technique that feels kind of unorthodox and feels honest and authentic to me. Yeah, that sounds great. It sounds like you are reacting to the materials and reacting to the ideas Absolutely. over being more rigid. Uh, it sounds like you're really being flexible. Uh, yes, absolutely. And I think I, I had, and initially I had to be because I didn't necessarily have all the techniques that I, I didn't even know that I didn't have the language for, for contemporary or, or the art world in that sense. When I first started about like seven, eight years or maybe 10 years ago now. But so it was just like, and again, I didn't have any expectation of this going into a museum or a gallery or anything or showing it to anyone. So right. it was um, the simply I was broke with the first diorama. I had zero money. I was making collages at the time. And this guy on the street would sell me old magazines for collage. And one day he threw me a ring box and he was like, oh, I, let's see what you do with this. And I got home and I had some old scraps of dried paint on uh, on a palette. And uh, I didn't have any more money for paint, so I peeled that off, and it was all this blue, washy blue, like watercolor, and uh, and I used that to create water. And then I had a little miniature that a friend had sent me from Japan of a woman. I started to carve it down and made it look like my girlfriend, and I put her in the water, and it looked like the and it was a scene of Third Beach in Vancouver where we always used to hang out. So again, still kind of always I recognize I've always riffed off the impressionist, chunky mm-hmm. paint, um, always figurative, um, and so. That's yeah, and that was the the first one, and then it was this thing that just connected to people because I liked meeting people, I liked talking to people. Like you, you wanted to talk to other artists, so you create this platform, and it's like, oh, this is a great way to meet people. Yeah, I the dioramas, like I could hand one to anybody, and at first they'd kind of step step back and be kind of standoffish. I don't want to, I don't want to buy anything. I don't want to, uh, and. Then they would open it up and then their eyes would change and now I could engage with them. And so initially these things were just for a way for me to to meet people and to to be social. Yeah, the miniature dioramas feel like little gifts. Uh, when I think about them, there's this aspect of a music box or something that you can close up and hide yeah. or take with you as you move around. They feel like little portable narratives. And I like this idea of transporting a story and sharing it with someone. Uh, it really comes through in these works. My mom has always called me a troubadour. Ah. She, I, before I really knew what the word meant, she, she'd say that we we're a troubadour because, again, I had to, I, and she said to me, because your talent and the art you make, the music I was making wasn't traditional. Um, it, she, it was pop, but it wasn't straight rap. It wasn't straight rock. She was like, you will always win when you take it to them. When you take it, when you get on the road and you travel and you meet people, you'll come back with all these opportunities. And yeah. so that's what the, the diorama is in a sense. It wasn't, again, planned, but how I was able to actually enter into the art world and get shows is because I just had these things on me and I could show up and, 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 and present people with them. When you say you had them on you, do you mean you carried them around in your pockets or you had them in a shoulder bag? Yeah, yeah, yeah. So first it started with a few in a pocket. Then it went to like, you know, I have a few in my backpack. And then I straight out bought like a James Bond briefcase <laughs> and had... <laughs> and I had like about like 25 of them in there and I literally uh, I had a friend who was um, he did very well in music and again I was still on the outside of the art world and he recognized my ability if I got out there and met people and he gave me a bunch of money he lent me a bunch of money he lent me like $30,000 that's a significant amount said, of money Just yeah man and he's like go make this thing happen and the first thing I did is I bought uh, I'd never been, I hadn't been to Europe and my mentor an art mentor at this time, a painter from Vancouver, Lawrence Paul Yuxwalupton. Uh, he, an indigenous artist, he was like, you have to go see Olympia. Like, you love Manet so much, you have to promise me one day you'll go see Olympia. So I planned this trip to go to Venice, the, the Biennale, my first time there, and to see Europe and do these things. And I had this case with me. And so you're so green. I'm so, I'm so green. And I'm walking up to people at Venice showing these things. But you know what? They Some of those folks who laughed at me in the beginning were kind of like, oh, this guy, like, come on, who brings their art to? Later did shows with me. Later gave yeah. me opportunities. Later see me in New York and they're like, 
holy shit, <laughs> somehow you found your way here, you know? That's a great story and yeah. uh, a good example of how sometimes taking those risks that other people say you shouldn't do can bear fruit and lead to good things. And what a great yeah. example of how things yeah. can come full yeah. circle. Yeah. So the dioramas then transitioned to, like, like if we talk about that, I, went, I ended up at New York Studio School uh, in 2016, and that was my first time working with clay and looking, working with wire, underwire, and making larger sculptures and plaster and casting. And that set the, planted the seeds for the Drawing Center show of wanting to cast ancient walls, making, these, making paper do things that maybe it traditionally didn't do. But uh, one of my closest childhood friends uh, is this guy, Brian Humphrey. And he was Dustin Yellen's studio manager from like very, very early on when uh, mm -hmm. Dustin was across the street from Pioneer. And then so when Pioneer got decimated, Brian was one of the guys there who helped rebuild that garden and everything back up. And okay. he's uh, we're from the same city in Edmonton. And he's I he is he is a genius with materials. He was a professor of industrial design. At, at the U of A in Alberta. And this there, there really isn't anything that he couldn't make if I said, hey, this is what I'm trying to do. So I passed on this idea. I'm like, I want to make these paper walls that look like all the ancient ruins because I was starting to look into Capriccio. And yeah. I want to do like these first idea was like, I was calling them hood frescoes because I was living in Brooklyn. And I would see at the side of a bodega, there's memorials to people who'd passed away with aerosol on brick. And then they'd kind of age, fade away with time and, and I just thought those were so beautiful. And I was like, if I could kind of tell my stories on surfaces that felt like that, I would, I would be through the moon. I'd be over the moon. And uh, he, over the course of two years, he experimented and he developed this paper and this technique that then we were able to cast the walls and they can handle all the pigments that I use equally. And uh, it's just been, and, we, and since then, the ideas keep growing. And so that was my first time really having like someone handle my art, you know? Right, right. And uh, that was, that's it's still a new experience for me. It's still a very mm -hmm. new experience for me. And it, if it wasn't for someone who knows me so well, I don't think it's something I really like leaning into. Let's get a little more granular on process. Sure. Uh, hearing how these large wall works that are currently on view in your drawing center show are made, you know, these works really pulled me in as a viewer. They're very powerful and, and I loved all the information in them all the texture and the images, and some of them felt like stories. And, and you're yeah. describing that they have this brick and cinder block surface impression, and you mentioned that that's paper. Was it paper pulp that was put into a mold? Yeah, it's a, so first we, um, we found our surfaces. We went with Brooklyn Brownstone, and then in my studio in Red Hook, uh, it was right at the edge of the pier. I was, uh, you know, um, but I was like right at the edge of the pier, more where the industrial uh, fabricators are. And so mm -hmm. my wall was this old rock from like 18, I think 1860, they're saying. And so we urethane rubber mold on the wall and then casting this. Okay, you casted the wall. Yeah. And then we just, yeah, we casted four surfaces. And uh, and then I wanted them to feel kind of like time, which when time and memories are kind of put together like a patchwork quilt. So then we started chopping up. We made them in four by four sections mm -hmm. and then started to chop them up. Um, and it was all, it was such a learning experience because now we're dealing with, uh, the first time we tested it and we casted it, we did it in Brian's basement. Mm -hmm. So our cure time was we could finish, uh, a brick panel. It would be done by the end of the week. But now my studio moves and I'm in Red Hook right by the water. It would take almost two weeks for these things to dry. Right. So we had to readjust the formula so we would have something that would cure a little bit faster so I could get to work on them. Because uh, the majority of that work for the drawing center was made in like a, a three, four months time period with all the research and everything being done before. But wow, again, that's so a pretty fast year, turnaround. It was, it, it was intense. I would never, now that we know the material, it doesn't have to feel like that. Right, but, right, right. But not knowing that how things are going to dry in winter versus summer and a heated basement, all these sort of things. Um, right. So urethane rubber mold, paper pulp with a little bit of special sauce in it. Mm -hmm. um, and then, yeah, that then we mounted it on Baltic birch so it wouldn't warp. Um, and then that's that was basically it for the walls. 
And then you use that as a surface to paint on. And I, and then you used what I assume are different types of paint to capture the imagery. So yeah, everything under the sun. Yeah, in terms of uh, the materials used on it. Uh, I always like to use charcoal for me has always been one of my favorite materials. Um, mm -hmm. Much like the, the scaffolding in the exhibition, I just find like scaffolding was used to build the pyramids. You know, like it's just, it's an ancient technology that we just, the materials will we'll modify or so but then i go to china and it's just bamboo you know yeah yeah um so uh charcoal was this connected point if like for my idea of my hood fresco classical meeting new if i could marry the charcoal with aerosol and have them both both read uh that was that was the goal and um so on those walls there's everything from aerosol watercolor oil literally pretty much every material possible yeah to get those those textures yeah, I'm looking at an image of, of one of the paper pulp wall works that's titled Origin is Tangy yes, Told yeah. Me. There's the logic of the staggered brick and cinder block surface, um, but the, the, the painted imagery is very centralized uh, compositionally. Yep. You've got this large circle basically right in the center, and then that's surrounded by what looks like a gecko or a lizard, and then there's a leaning tree with a bird on one of its limbs. And then there's a unicorn sitting in the lower right. And then opposite that is what looks like um, a, a sitting primate. And then the, in the center of that circle mm -hmm. is what looks like an animal part or a section of an animal that's been dissected or undergone some, some sort of surgery. Looks like it's splayed open in the center. Uh, yeah. yeah, splayed open. Um, it seems like there's a lot of specific symbolism in this painting. Okay, so that piece in particular, um, I started looking at... Um, the the use of of how to express the divine feminine energy um okay. so often in greek classical greek you have the archway but when you reverse that arch instead of having it go swooping up and around having it going down and under they talked about that as a as a feminine power line i was looking at uh sheila sheila and the gigs the the celtic uh naked woman carvings uh they're figurative mm -hmm. But they were again expressing the feminine power, and mm -hmm. and I found this medieval object where basically it was one of those, but then had four heads on the on the like like from the top left, top right, bottom left, bottom right are these four heads, and in the center you have what looks like like a vagina that's opening, mm -hmm. and mm -hmm. it's this medieval carving. And so I wanted to reference that, and so this because my when my my tanti a tanti is like your great wise aunt. And I had an old, uh, my, my, my great wise aunt, she lived to be 102 in Trinidad. Oh, wow. And I remember very early on, we would sit and she would talk about origin stories for us. And so there was, uh, and so as I'm piecing together these memories and knowing the story's not going to be accurate, we always had geckos that would run into the house. And the gecko is supposed to be the symbol of new life because with these geckos, you could chop off the tail and the tail would grow back. That That's idea. right. And yep. So um, and then we have uh, the robin, uh, which is uh, the red robin, which was, again, another a signifier of new life. This was a manifestation piece. I've been wanting to have family. A lot of the show, Can't I Alter, I, I realize a lot of the work is about the making of family, the making of a child. Uh, uh, and, and so a lot of these were just the manifestation. So I started combining all these animals from Egyptology uh, Celtic mythology. Um, so you have the unicorn there, uh, and um, and so the the baboon is supposed to be the idea. He is a thought. He is also the keeper of the death gates of death, and the idea that to have life. My oh, my my aunt, my great my tante would always talk about a family member when an old family member died. That made space for a new one. Mm -hmm. So the idea of death not being the the end all, it was that it had there had to be someone in the family to pass away. There has to be this renewal, this this circular motion. That you have this big circle with all these animals dancing around the circle, and in the center of the circle, you have this uh, this 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 feminine energy, this idea of the womb, um, mm -hmm. and so that's that's the idea behind that one. You know, to backtrack on this idea of being a multidisciplinary artist. Your show at the, uh, the the drawing center is a great illustration or example of all your different modes of working. You've got drawing, there's painting, sculpture, there's installation, yeah. uh, and a performance slash video work. I was fortunate that they they trusted me to do that because it being the drawing center, there was in the initial 
uh, conversation of this installation, there was a lot of there were has they were hesitant to include sculpture and all these objects, but as we were figuring this out, thankfully they put faith and trust in the process and a lot of the, because again, some of these works were made, a lot of the works were made, you know, in that time period I came to New York to prepare for the drawing center, but then there's drawings and objects that are three, four years old, where I'd always been kind of hoping that when they came together, they would tell a story, but it wasn't guaranteed. So mm -hmm. during the, during the, the preparation of this exhibition, I don't think I've ever been more stressed dealing with an institution because, uh, Again, it, it it was like I would, I have so many sports analogies. You're playing in minor leagues and you're against the best pitcher, sure, but then you step up to the major leagues and the ball is moving much faster. Yeah, this was yeah. my first institutional show. I learned so much, so much, learning the roles of each person in the museum and how to effectively communicate with them. Uh huh. Uh huh. Because they're trying to manage risk with the new artists and. The budget and everything like that and it was uh oh my god like now i know but i'm glad i didn't know what i was getting into in the beginning because i think yeah. it would it would have prevented me from really being able to be free with the ideas well let's salute their willingness to step outside of what a traditional drawing exhibition could be and um maybe how all these different modes can be linked through yes. the potential of drawing still on the process thread the other thing I wanted to touch on was using intuition as a tool. I know it plays an important role in your work and how you make stuff, being responsive to ideas and materials. Can you talk about how you use intuition? Yeah, it's it's everything for me. It is probably the most important part of my practice because um, I'm I'm I, I've learned a long time ago that through music that I am best when I'm in the mode, in the moment. I've done a lot of reading and research and all these other things. And so in that moment, I can trust that my, the mind, once it's in that, that state of just opening and, and not judging what's going to come, that all of that study and research and time spent will appear. It, you can rely on it. Um, without it, I don't think I would have ever made the dioramas or uh, uh, ended up at studio school and which started so much of it for me, um, simply meeting a guy on the street and my gut being like, ask him what's in that room. I asked this gentleman, I was, uh, I was on a bad Tinder date. It wasn't bad only being we met and immediately intuition for both of us was like, no. Nah. And as we meet, this guy, is, as we're deciding that, this guy comes out and puts down his garbage behind us. And I look and I see kind of like these shadowy figures behind this plexiglass. And I'm like, hey, what's that? And he's like, oh, it's my studio. And I said, well, can I come in? And he says, sure. And I go in and it's this artist, Bruce Gagne, a sculptor, whose work I'd seen in Chelsea maybe two or three weeks prior. And when I saw the work, my intuition said, it's time for you to study. you got to figure out how to, to understand, figure the way that he has. And pri prior to that, I saw Marcus Lupert, a Marcus Lupert show in Paris when I was on that trip, that uh, the, my big European adventure uh, and that's when the idea that, that came to like, it's time to study, it's time to, fi to study figure. And so uh, I saw the work and I was like, oh my God, I've just seen your work. I love what you do. Can I study with you? And he said, well, no, I don't teach privately, but if you show up tomorrow at the New York Studio School, and I had some dioramas with me, so I showed him that, well, he goes, if you show up at Studio School, I'll make sure you get in. And so I showed up the next day and met, met uh, Graham Nixon and... Uh, and it was game on, and that changed everything. And again, that reaffirmed to me that, like, just trust the gut. Like, you don't have the academic background, but you have the hours. And these people recognize that. Mm -hmm. So just trust, trust, trust. And I, when I first started drawing, I had a mantra, um, delay the reaction, retrain the synapses. So I don't have studies. I don't, oh, I'm only later in, when going to school, start to work from figure. But I would get step up to the blank surface and fear would come in and it'd be like, oh, I don't know what that is. Is this right? Is this right? And I would just tell myself, delay the reaction or train the synapses, meaning trust whatever you're seeing, whatever you're seeing in your mind, just trust it, trust it. And the mm -hmm, more mm -hmm. I said that, the more my drawings started to be these weird things. And a little side note, so like to get into New York Studio School, when you're accepted, you have to do this drawing marathon in like the in the winter time before the first semester and i'm in this drawing marathon i've never drawn with charcoal or these things on the scale and i'm nervous and i'm like okay man just draw what 
whatever it is coming out, just just go with it. And so I'm going with it. And then we had at the end of the day, we have critique. And at the critique, there's this older woman sitting beside me. And I put my drawing up and she says, you know, these are really good, but you don't need a punchline. Just trust what's happening. You don't need a punchline. And I was kind of first put off by that. I was like, well, A, who, who are you to be telling me anything? I'm already a nervous wreck here. Like, yeah. what's going on? And yeah. then I just didn't say anything. And we continued to sit beside each other and shoot comment. And then I started to understand what she was saying. And it turned out to be that I was sitting next to Amy Silman. And, oh wow! Yeah, <laughs> and so when people at lunchtime, like like a like a high school movie, people would be like, "Whoa, you're friends with Amy Silman?" And I'm like, "I have no idea who that is." And I <laughs> Google her. I was like, "I'm not going to Google her." People are freaking out. I'm just going to let this friendship develop. And she gave me a lot of faith in what I was doing. And then I later realized, like, "Oh, who is this person?" And if my gut has got me and my intuition has got me to these points and these people who are well-versed in drawing and are, are, are recognizing this, then like it's time, just, it's time to stop the, the doubts. Yeah, yeah, that's amazing. The other thing that I think is uh, really nice about an intuitive way of working is it connects to honesty and authenticity. Yes. And sometimes those Absolutely. first moves, um, those first moves we make on canvas or, or the clay or whatever are the most truthful. Uh, and that's a romantic idea, and obviously things need to be edited or changed, or that truth feels wrong sometimes, but um, mm -hmm. I do really appreciate that first initial gesture. But what you said, too, about the romance, yeah, that's what I love about art. I will forever be like a student of that. I will forever I don't. I don't care how academic something is. Mm -hmm. I want to feel that romance of like, oh. You know, and then later, let me, okay, you know, like, it took a lot for, I remember when I first saw Olympia, and I cried, and it wasn't because of the the figure, or the romance, well, the energy that he put into the stone that's on her bracelet. It's just this blue stone with, like, a galaxy in it, and that, for me, was just like, oh, my God, I hope I never lose that. Yeah. I hope I never get so jaded that that I, I you know like that for me is 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 everything. When you we talked about when you see a, when you you know you see so many things that you're just like oh, okay 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 and you start to fall out of love with art and then you're romanced back in by seeing something that is so honest. Mm -hmm. And uh I think um I always come back to Kanye West um regardless of his political views or anything. Right. I respect his honesty. He doesn't lie to himself. He believes mm -hmm. he believes what he's saying. Mm -hmm. You know, I've watched some interviews recently where I'm just like, all right, I don't have to agree with you, but I do respect your belief in your vision and your willingness to continue when everybody's telling you no. And yeah. his music, his music has, I think, succeeded because for a long time, it was some of the most honest. One day I'm going to marry a porn star. He said in a song before he married Kim Kardashian. <laughs> yeah. And people were like, what? We're going to have a, she'll have a fat ass and we'll have a nice car. And then he talked about <laughs> all these kids. And I'm like, I don't, it sounded crazy as hell at the time, but this guy manifested his reality. Yeah, it's like some version of a dream board. Like, yeah. like you pin, your, <laughs> pin images of your dreams on the wall and they somehow magically come true. Yeah. Um, <laughs> let's talk a little bit more about content and ideas. And yep. I know we've sort of done that throughout, but yep. I thought it would be interesting to talk about some of the through lines in your work, particularly with this idea of genetic trauma um, that you've spoken about in other interviews and different types of histories, both real and imagined histories, as well as imagined ancestors. Can you touch on some of these ideas? Yeah. Through my travels, I was fortunate to like encounter works that were just like flat out wrong. Um, encounter a Sangoma in South Africa, who was like a healer, a medicine person who, who said to me, you know, you're trying to, the, well, the first time, um, I'll rewind, there's an artist, Nepsidu from Canada. Uh, his father saw work of mine. And uh, he said to me, you're trying to communicate with your ancestors in this work. And I said, well, I'm, and it was initially when I was, it's called the Nubian origin story. And it's looking at the Dogon mythology of, 
this water god that descends from the dark side of the moon and mm-hmm. gives them the knowledge of the stars, the solar system. And he said, it's possible. He said, in my culture, and, uh, I believe in Nepisik, that we've always believed we could communicate forward and backwards with ancestry. Hmm. And he's like, lean into that. You can. And then I, my travels take me to South Africa where I meet the Sangoma who tells me, oh, I had a dream you were coming and this is what you're interested in. And they were spot on. And this is how you can access these things. Because I was I getting to America, I found that so much was focused on the moment of slavery. And I had read a quote that said before we were brought as slaves, we were scientists, doctors, mothers, artists, poets, all these things. So I was working in reacting to the police brutality and the things that I was the trauma I was seeing in in America and and recognizing that it was only building more scar tissue within myself. Right. I was becoming traumatized. And so I thought, well, if there can be genetic genetic trauma, why can't ourselves also inhabit the joy, the creativity, the imagination of our ancestors? Mm-hmm. And so it sounded crazy to me at first, but then when I started working in these spaces and wanting to make joyous works that would reflect ancestors that I never met, then discovering my own ancestry, my own identity uh, involves a grandfather, a great-grandfather, who is a white Frenchman, who is in Trinidad, who from the village, some stories go, was actually in love with my grandma. They loved each other, and it wasn't this moment of uh, rape or anything like that. How? Mm-hmm. And so then I'm like, well, who are his ancestors? Who I get to Africa, where in America I'm black, I'm, I'm identifiably black. Then I get to Africa, and and someone looks at me and says, "Oh, you got that Portuguese nose." And it's like, "Yeah, I do." But in one place I'm one thing, and another place I'm another thing, and another place I'm another thing. So then I started to open, open it all up, and be like, "My identity isn't so easy to boil down just to the color color of my skin, or the texture of my hair, or the all these things make up a complex package." And I needed to free myself of just working from the news headlines and the trauma. And I was like, imagination is the best way to go. So I packed up and I went to Portugal after seeing a painting of a a knight who was in the order of Santiago. And that's when I really started to just work in that space of, 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 of not necessarily the immediate contemporary identity who were all my people before this moment that, seems to be really focused on in America. I understand why it's focused on in America, but through reading Glissant, being like, I'm African-Canadian, I'm Caribbean-Canadian, I'm, my story is slightly different. It's in relation to African-Americans, but it's different. Right. How do I communicate those differences without uh, just treading on the same one note, you know? If that makes sense. Yeah, for sure. You, you know, I'm wondering as you work through these ideas, I imagine it's gaining a better understanding of oneself and one's history, and it, it, it's probably some form of healing. But I also wonder if it's re-traumatizing to unpack this history, or is it uh, a, a, another way to continue a certain conversation? For me, the re-traumatizing was, um, it was necessary. One of my best pieces, and I think only because of, uh, I call it one of my best works because I saw the impact it had on people, like to witness them, witness looking at it, was my piece on Eric Garner. But if I tell you how much I cried over that work and how it, it then Philando Castile gets killed uh, on, in, on Facebook and now I'm taking a cab everywhere. I'm not riding my bike because one night I was followed home from by the police coming from, from Pioneer Works when I was doing that residency, riding mm-hmm. up Myrtle Ave Hill, and the cops come right behind me. And I'm like, oh, my God, they could take my life. And I'm getting – and I'm constantly, like, seeing these images of black bodies being beaten and murdered. And I it this actually freed me of the pain of that to – know that oh shit so poetry um eating meals and courses comes from north africa and zaib this moor who came to the iberian peninsula in portugal brought the idea of sitting down and accompanying food with muse and finding out so much more about african culture and the diaspora 
and a time in in Moorish culture when there were Moorish, there was Moorish dominance in uh, in Europe that it was about people being able to practice whatever religion they wanted, and women were actually quite equal, and it wasn't how European history has painted a lot of it. Right. It allowed me to just like, oh, like, because uh, I had a teacher early on, I said, you know, you could have been a Moor, one of the ancient Moors. And when my, I took a drawing class at Emily Carr, and, and then I began to understand, because I was more interested in culture, people, ideas, and sharing of knowledge. And that's, the Moors were really into into the science and math and bringing these things and sharing ideas, not trying to solely possess them. Right, right. So it it, it freed me up. It getting and also getting out of America, to be honest. I have to say, definitely, Europe is with its problems, if for sure, with with the migration crisis, all these things. But to not be viewed through the lens that Americans view blackness was refreshing. Yeah, yeah. To say the U.S. is problematic is the understatement of the century. I mean, we have such a long, awful history of cruelty and violence and ignorance. Not the, I don't like to dwell on the negative, but today I had, a, I had this moment where how many times have I been in, in, in the States, let's say on a subway with my headphones in, minding my own business, and an older, let's say white woman will sit beside me, she'll look at me, and she'll grab her purse. Mm-hmm. How, I can't tell you how many times that happens to me. This the microaggression. Today I'm, and again I don't believe that the world are without its problems. But today I'm, I, and it happens often. I'm in Munich. I'm standing outside the grocery store, and this older lady comes and she has her purse in her bike bag, her back of her bike, and her groceries. She forgot something in the grocery store. She looked at me. She smiled. She left her shit there, and she went back into the grocery store. Yeah, that that wouldn't happen here. That wouldn't happen here. That wouldn't happen. You know what I'm saying? Like, but I'm, and I don't think it's just a black thing. It's like, it is a black thing, but it's also just this lack of trust in people. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, let's wade into how we operate in studio. You know, this is a reoccurring area of this project, how artists prepare and manage for a studio visit. And everyone seems to do it a little bit differently. I I think hearing this type of stuff is really valuable for artists. So what's your angle on getting ready for a studio visit? Uh, we, we talked a lot about honesty. Um, I used to arrange the studio, the things that I thought were the best things, finished things, put them in place. I would go into studio a bit early in my career with, with hope and expectation. Like me, like me, you know? Mm-hmm. I had a, through the Pioneer's residency where you have a bunch of studio visits, you, I met such a range of people and the responses, I realized that I can't read anyone's mind. Some people can come in and act like they love it, but maybe they don't and they're just being polite. But my relationship with Rachel Uffner, it was her last studio visit of that day. She'd seen eight artists. She had to pick up her son in about a half hour. Mm-hmm. And she came in and she just kind of looked, looked, looked. And I was like, oh, this was disappointing. <laughs> oh, my God. This was like, I was, I was upset. I just went home. I was like, this that was, let's say, September, October. End of October, I get a message from her being like, hey, it's really short notice, but would you want to do a show with us in the main gallery? I've noticed you have a lot of work. Would you want to do a show? Mm-hmm. That was the last reaction I was expecting. That's fascinating. What a mismatch between how you experienced exactly. that visit and the outcome. So my expectations, my internal, my previous history, I'm putting a filter up for what that studio visit was like what i was expect all these expectations this what is the reality we don't know i can't read someone's mind so what that taught me was to just i don't go into a studio visit with ex- any expectations i've done the work i have what i have i am who i am some people are going to vibe with it some people are not and that's the best i can hope for all i do hope that there's a connection a human connection where if this, we're not talking about work, we're talking about some dope sandwich they had or something where there's a moment where we can be humans together. Mm-hmm. And I remember early on, I would set out wine and then try to like impress, impress. But it's like, no, like, like I want to treat you like anybody else coming into my home or my space. Would you like something to drink? Cool. This is, this is who I am and this is what I have to offer. 
And that's and that's now how I approach every studio visit. I think that's great advice. You know, remembering to be humans during these visits and talk about things other than the work, talk about life, talk about that incredible sandwich, for example. You know, in a lot of ways, when we talk about life and interests outside of the art specifically, we're talking about the work indirectly, I think. It's all context. And, you know, there's all those intersections of life and art that can collide in really meaningful ways during yes. studio visits. What about the challenges you hit in studio, the distractions, when the work isn't landing right for you? Do you have strategies for when you face these issues? If I feel like it's not landing, I just let it sit. Because mm -hmm. things that I thought didn't land a year later, I'm like, you just didn't understand it. You were actually on a good train. You had expectations for what this was supposed to be or what you wanted to make work about that day or what you wanted to. And what you, like, and that's just, you know, like I think I, I had a partner who is a, who is a very, very good painter. And she was more of the process that she would destroy. Like mm -hmm. if she tear it up and I'd be like, oh, but that's their process. I'm more of like, if it's not feeling right, just let it sit. Like, there's songs that I've written that I thought were shit. Then I listen back now and I'm like, again, it's filtered through whatever insecurities I'm having that day. What It could be things that I'm not even processing that I'm stressed about that I'm embedding into this that is not necessary. So just let it breathe. Yeah, that's well said. What about crisis of confidence? You know, this notion of second guessing oneself. Uh, mm -hmm. This is something I think a lot of artists wrestle with. Mm -hmm. I I I I'm fortunate that I have a great a, a crew of people who've been with me forever. Whether that guy who lent me the thirty thousand mm -hmm. dollars when I recorded my very last album, working with a world class producer, and we sat in his car, and I spent two years, I spent a lot of money on it, and I played it for him, and he's like, "This is really good." He goes, "This is this is original." It's better than most things, but it's not great. And I was like, uh, uh, uh. like, he told me what it really, and now I listen back and I'm like, it was cool. And there are some things that are innovative for the time. And if we look at the history of music and the sound that developed from Toronto, from my friends and I, I will be a part of that history. But this is also a larger part, the small part of a larger body of work. My whole art, my whole life is my art, is my, my body of work. So maybe it wasn't the thing I thought this album would be like the hit, but it contributes to when I look back and be like, well, these are all the things I made. So the con the, the, I, the, when, I, when I don't know about something, I have people I can ask and be like, yo, what do you think of this? And mm -hmm. I respect them and their eyes so much because they view so much work or they are deep within the art world or whatever, or even if they're not in the art world, but they know me, they can try more and more and more, sorry, to have that 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 Kanye and Kanye energy and belief in self. Yeah, yeah. You're you're talking about support systems. It's so important for all of yeah. us to build and nurture these support systems. And that honesty, you know, the person that will tell you that without their, you know, like their jealousy or anything, the person who can really say, ah, maybe that ain't it. And you know, they 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 it's accurate, you know. Yeah, yeah. I think uh, self-maintenance and self-care are critical for artists, both mentally and physically, and having interests outside of art can be very healthy. So I'm wondering what other interests you have and what you do to take care of yourself. Video games and, uh, and my new love for basketball. Um, my, like, I played a lot when I was younger, but again, I came in with so many expectations that were unrealistic. Uh -huh. And now I can... I can um, I can go into, I can step onto the court and just want to improve. I'm not going mm -hmm. to make the NBA. I'm as a 40 year old man, I'm past my physical prime apparently. <laughs> <laughs> so I'm just going to just, just, just to learn the mechanics and improve because when you feel like you learn something, I find when I feel like I learn a little something, it trickles into like, Oh, well maybe I'll just spend that extra half hour drawing figure again and I'll absorb it. And, that has been just released. And I find when I get to the studio after I've played basketball or shot around, I can immediately jump into work versus getting on social media when I get to the studio, having a coffee, doing these other things. But video games are my favorite escape. I have to ask, yeah. what games do you like to play? Oh, I'm into these games called uh, God of War. Uh, the story and narrative of God of War is 
phenomenal. It's a father wow. and son tale of this fallen god, and it was it's better than most movies I've seen. Uh, and now that these games have like, there's so much money involved, the actors that they have playing these characters are <laughs> Academy Award winning actors, and the stories oh, wow. are so well written. Um, and then getting lost in audiobooks. Um, but my favorite is I've been from the very first like Pong. I have always loved computer games and uh, oh, okay. puzzle games. So God of War, but then I'll play games. There's like this game called Uncharted, which is kind of like an Indiana Jones, and you solve uh, these puzzles and you shoot up the people. And um, and then sports games. I, I just VR. I'm really I'm really excited about where VR is going. VR painting, tilt brush is incredible. Um, yeah, I, I yeah. That's my escape. Cool. I'm video game ignorant, but I'll have to check out God of War. And VR painting is on my bucket list for sure. The first time I tried it was at Pioneer Works. They had a tilt brush. Google had sent uh, a demo. And to draw a line in that environment, I came alive. It's yeah. like you see Picasso do his light drawing. Well, mm -hmm. you're doing that, but you, now you can walk around the line you've made three-dimensionally and... And it flows, and it, uh, it's yeah, it was it's so much fun. I'm excited about the where that can go, because let's just say that um, the 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 drawing center show required a lot of material and a lot mm -hmm. of money, mm -hmm. and ways to not use so much is uh, I'm looking for more ecological ways of making art and things that don't require like urethane rubber molds and you know i love the effect of it i love material and i love making but if there's a way i can do that sometimes and do something else do something within a computer at another times and go back and forth and marry the two uh yeah yeah those are great goals and i identify with that i mean this deep color project is an example of some form of studio extension that's um that's making something that i can share and that's not a physical object. It's, it's been so refreshing to make something that isn't object-based. What was the last great piece of culture you experienced? Maybe it was a book yeah. or a film or music? The, uh, the, the book, the, the Golden Finch. Okay. I got lost in that world. And, uh, and I mourn the loss of that world. The way they spoke about painting and antiquity and materials and the character development it, uh, it allowed me to feel like I was back in New York, and it also made my dioramas better. Excellent. That's great. Yeah. yeah. What's on the horizon? I mean, we have to get through this pandemic, but do you have any projects coming up? There's been some loose talks. There's been some loose talks with um, a children's museum. Yeah. I, the dioramas, there's always this disconnect once the dioramas enter a museum. You can't touch them. You can't hold them, especially now. How are we going to, how is it going to be without a vaccine, being able to handle objects and pass them around, things like that? So I want to build these like kinetic boxes that kids can crank, turn cranks, and the dioramas can move in front of different magnification, magnif lenses, magnification, uh, magnifying lenses, and mm -hmm. expand and track. And just, I want to have it feel like Pee Wee's Playhouse a little bit. I, I, I like the idea of making art for kids. Um, because I love seeing when they respond to the work. Seeing kids respond to the drawing center was so much fun. Mm -hmm. um, but right now, there's so many. There was I was fortunate that I had a lot of museum shows on the line lined up, and in my mind, they're just postponed. So I'm just waiting to hear back to see what will happen. No expectations now. Just yeah, um, yeah. yeah, just wait and see. But I'm I'm I was prior to this, I was about to have a really beautiful run. Right, right. And you're preparing for fatherhood. Yes, the most exciting. Let's not forget that. Yes, that is the most exciting project. Yeah, yeah, I, of course, I can't wait. Of course, of course. Curtis, it's been so wonderful to talk with you about your work and learn more about your ideas. Stay healthy and safe, and thank you for participating in this project. Well, thanks for having me, Joseph. We've made it to the end. A quick reminder that you can learn more about each contributing artist, 
Find links to their online portfolios and access the archive of past recordings by visiting deepcolorpodcast.com. Be sure to share this project within your community and rate and subscribe in the Apple Podcast directory or wherever you get your podcasts. Thanks for listening and check back soon for a new episode.